0: You're listening to Mark Who 42, this time, part one of our interview with Nicholas Briggs, executive producer of Big Finish.
1: Hi, I'm Nick Briggs. I'm the executive producer of Big Finish Productions and the voice of the Daleks, and you're listening to Mark Who 42. 42,
0: to Marku forty two. That's right, Marku forty two. Doctor Who on Krypton Radio. I'm your host, Mark Baumgarten. We of course have Patty Hawkins, Christian Basil, and Keila Oscalillo on, but we also have another person on the show, and he is legendary. It's Nicholas Briggs. Hello, Nick. Hello. Hi, Nicholas Briggs is uh, ex- your your executive producer at. Big Finish Productions. Correct. Correct.
1: Is this a quiz? You
0: are a writer. You are a (laughs) director. You are an actor. You've been on Doctor Who as, well, you haven't, you've kind of been on Doctor Who. Your voice has been on Doctor Who. Yes. And you've been a fan since God knows when.
1: I think that's more or less correct. Yes, Since I can remember. I was born before Doctor Who started.
0: Right. Yes, I I have. So you probably, when you were a little kid, watched William Hartnell.
1: Yes, I I do remember William Hartnell. I remember seeing uh, his final year. I, I have memories of that. Yes, so, but I must have seen some before because the Daleks were not a shock to me when I uh, saw Power of the Daleks. So I must have seen something. before. So you actually got to see Power of the Daleks. You mm-hmm. watch that and Evil of the Daleks, obviously. You know, but I remember watching it when the BBC repeated it. I remember, you know, because I was still very young, but I remember getting about, you know, halfway into episode one and thinking, "Hold on, I've seen this before." <laughs>
0: But those episodes—they're some of the ones that were wiped and are missing, and so we we can't actually watch them. Now we can watch them as, as reconstructions. I know fans have put out with the screen caps, mm. they've put out with the audio, and you can watch it. You know, the, the underground Doctor Who people.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. Uh and you know, I, I'm holding out. <laughs> I, I've seen it that way. Let me let me put it that way. I've seen Power of the Daleks, but not the way it was meant to be seen. Yeah. So you you got you
1: go I do yeah yeah I did see it and um it has to it has to be said that every time they um uh, announce that they've found uh, uh you know one of the old episodes I always say to my friend Rob Shearman, I say what well, what is it what is it they found?" I say unless it's evil of the daleks I'm not interested <laughs> Because um, I don't, I don't quite know what I would do if if Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks came back. Because, let me just tell you a little sad story about how much of a Doctor Who fan I am. When um, uh, the um, the Web of Fear uh, was uh, recovered, I was in New York at a Comic Con at the time. And I was woken up in the early hours of the morning by uh, a text on my mobile phone from someone who obviously didn't know I was in America saying, uh, how excited are we that uh, uh, Web of Fear is available on iTunes right now? And I thought, what? Oh, and then I thought I could I could buy it now. So I did. Uh And then, you know, from I don't know, it was sort of like one o'clock in the morning or something. And uh, and I sat there and I watched it and um it was amazing. I, I remember t- I texted uh, um, Fraser Hines while I was watching it. It's like, I'm watching you now. you know. And then yeah. I went and had a shower before breakfast. And in the shower, I just broke down and cried like a child. I just, the whole thing was completely overwhelming for me. It was a bit like a sort of a, a, a relative who's been dead for many years, suddenly knocking on the door and saying, hi, I'm still around. It was that emotional for me, really. Wow. I never thought I'd see it again, you know, I re- I had a sort of misty memory of it, and there it was, and I kept remember bits, I thought, oh, I, do- I remember this bit, you know, it was, it was remarkable, really, and that, you yeah, it's difficult to explain uh, how it makes you feel to people who are not fans of Doctor Who, you know, they must... You can imagine telling that to people who've either never heard of Doctor Who or don't care for it much, and them just looking at you and... Uh... Uh, but <laughs>
2: how, how, how do you get people to wrap their heads around, okay, imagine that all the copies of Empire Strikes Back disappeared. <laughs> yes. And then <laughs> sit, sit, and they, they all magically disappeared, and then somebody found the copy. Yeah. That's, that's the elevator. the data, elev- yes. Yeah.
3: It's kind of that mentality that the new generation of Doctor Who's have that the whovians have come out here versus our generation grew up with the PBS and, and all the channels that came out grew up with uh with John in per America, course, yeah. in America <laughs> with John Perwee, Tom Baker, and so on. And when you hear one of the whovians go, Oh, I love Matt Smith, he's my favorite third doctor, I'm like <laughs> oh. <laughs> No. Go, uh well well, in their defense, when I was watching on PBS And Nicholas, I I tell this story all the time, is that my PBS always ran Tom Baker. So for five years straight, I thought Robot was the beginning of the series and Logopolis was the end. And my doctor dropped off the tower, became a blonde, and that started all over again. That was the end of the series. (laughs) Then somebody came up and goes, oh, the five doctors came out. We're going to put a special on, like, five doctors? (laughs) By the way, there's three more before him. I'm like, what? Yes, yeah. So yeah. we had a lot of catching up to do over there. But I just i am going back to your statement when you mentioned that you were a Doctor Who fan since when. I can only picture you coming out of the womb with a sonic screwdriver attached. <laughs> what is that?
0: Now, you do the voice of the Daleks. You play the voice of the Cybermen on the new show. But I don't know if a lot of people know that you've actually, in several different media formats, played the doctor.
1: This is true.
0: I have, well, I had. I don't have anymore. I had the Doctor Who magazine, where they kind of trick you into you're going to be the the new doctor,
1: and they, yeah, there's
0: yeah. a it's you. I mean, they, they they drew you.
1: They did, yes.
0: I love that. And then you also were that, uh, was
1: the the, sec- that was the second time they'd done it though, because they there was also another um, strip a few years before. Uh, oh, it was
0: party animals, wasn't it? Party animals, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. But the later one, when you were the supposed Ninth Doctor, I was just like, whoa. This is great.
1: That was quite controversial at the time. It
0: was. Uh, the, I remember the controversy. Yeah, yeah, it was.
1: Because, you know, have you heard that in London, every first Thursday of the month, there's a particular pub. It's actually being being closed for refurbishment at the moment, but it's called the Fitzroy Tavern. Yeah, yes. And, yeah, and uh, Doctor Who fans meet there the first Thursday of every month, so you can just wander along there. And, and I remember, and this was, called, of course, way before the new series came back. And I worked at the Sci-Fi Channel just along the road from the Fitzroy Tavern, actually in the same road. And I wandered along there uh, one first Thursday of the month. And as I was went to go in the pub, a friend of mine greeted me at the door. And he just, uh, he sort of, I think he physically restrained me from going in. And he said, you do not want to go in there. And I said, why? And then he showed me the Doctor Who magazine and he just said this. And I went, what? And I don't know, but I think there was equal measure of joy and anger. I sort of looked over his shoulder and saw a few people glare at me, and I said, I'd better go home then. (laughs)
0: Now, the Doctor that was in Party Animals was based on – and this was the other version of the Doctor you played. You were in a series of unofficial audio dramas way before Big Finish was even a sparkle in the atmosphere, an idea. For audiovisuals, you did you, – you played the Doctor, and I actually have those. I was looking in my computer, found the files. Uh, you – it was – it was – it was uh, – they were interesting audios back then.
1: Well, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so you restrained yourself from praising them. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs>
3: not. Well,
1: uh, hey, uh, all I can say is this. I have a
3: picture of Nick Briggs as the mock doctor, and I was said he was making bow ties look cooler way back yeah, before well, Matt Smith you know, even, even touched yeah. it.
1: <laughs> yeah, we had great fun doing that, uh, and uh, it was a very formative experience for me. Um, it's uh, – you know, I learned and honed quite a few skills while I was doing this because I used to do a lot of the um, post-production You know, uh, the editing and the sound design and music. And I really learned the skills that helped me to uh, work for Big Finish so that when, you know, and when Gary Russell and I, because we were working on it for the final uh, season, we were working together because we did four seasons, four series. And uh, we said to each other when we finally sort of grew up and had to move on from spending all our waking hours making these things, you know, we had to move on and get proper jobs. You know, we had this pipe dream that one day we'd love to get a license from the BBC to wouldn't it be great, said Gary, if we could do this with the, the, the real doctors off the telly? And, you know, so we always had that desire. And then one day, of course, Gary Russell came round had to have a cup of tea with me, as he did many times in those days, because we lived about five minutes walk from each other. Uh, and he, he just said, it's happened, you know. Jason and I have managed to get this license. So, yeah, it was a very important experience for me.
0: And to be honest, I did like them. I did enjoy them.
1: Yeah, they are what they are, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they're what they are. Yeah.
0: They're the training grounds for Big yes. Finish. Yeah. Real-time pictures uh, you used oh, yeah. to work for. I still work for real You yeah, still
1: work for real-time? real-time yeah. still there? Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. Yeah. They've got a site called Time Travel TV now. Give the URL,
0: timetraveltv.co.uk.
1: Do you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly what it is, but I can find out if I just look at a, an email from um farm okay. father. And I, I think he's probably got it at the bottom of his uh, emails. But, you, <laughs> but yes, you can get downloads of them now. You
0: can get downloads and, of them. You can stream them. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen I've seen the site.
1: TimetravelTV.com. Time-travel-t-
0: oh, dot .com. Okay. Yeah. So you were the host of The Myth Makers, a series yeah. of uh, made-for-video documentaries. And you got to interview some of probably your most favorite people, Doctor Who actors. Yes, so, yeah. Who was your favorite to interview of all the oh, interviews well. that you did? Because you did a lot.
1: Yeah, I suppose you did. And uh, let me think. Um, favorite to interview. I, I don't do – I'm a bit like Colin Baker in that I don't do favorites.
0: Right, yeah, I yeah. I, I, I probably shouldn't have used the word favorite. I no, no, think The most memorable – <laughs> in terms of enjoying
2: it, what goes in your sizzle reel? Yeah, what goes in your sizzle reel?
1: From well, interviewing Colin Baker, for example, was a real turning point for me, because doing those videos was all about me wanting to sort of do performing work and not getting the chances to do it. And someone gave me the chance to do it, and I was quite nervous, right. you know. And I realised—I don't know what I realised at the time, but certainly retrospectively—that what I really wanted to do and this sounds a bit sad i'd really want to meet doctor who you know i don't really want and the the characters and really you know meeting the actors there was always a, a sense of slight disappointment and in those days doctor who was really not cool at all so getting you don't don't
0: you don't have to tell us that don't have to tell
1: us that getting them to talk about Doctor Who was really quite difficult because there was no, I'm not saying there was no joy, but it was difficult to get that joy in them about it, all of them, because it was a slightly embarrassing thing, you know, um, for them. So some of the interviews I I found quite a strain, really. And then when I did the one with Colin Baker, he was the first one, really, who had an unrestrained joy about his time on Doctor Who which, uh, you know, some people might think is ironic. given I was about that. to say ironic considering his, his departure. Yes, exactly. But he was, But of all the people I interviewed at that time, he was the one who embraced it most, had the most joy about it. And Pivotal for me, which sounds a little bit egotistical, gave me credit for the job I was doing. So he his attitude was very much like you're the interviewer. You're in charge. You're you know, and he did everything he could to help me. And we got on like a house on fire and he gave me a huge amount of confidence that I hadn't previously had doing those interviews. And then uh, so I did uh, uh, then did an interview with Sophie Aldred and Sophie's my age. So we got on She's
0: my girlfriend, by the way.
1: Oh, well, there you go. Yes. <laughs> I'll have a we, we, about that. We've we, we
0: solidified that. We, we, we've had her on the show before. We're, we've solidified
1: that. We're together. Well, she's a lovely human being. She, and, you know, and that, that was a lovely one to do. But uh, also, and I, I particularly liked the Mary Tam one okay. um, because uh, Mary is so lovely and so completely outrageous that she um, – before we were filming, she told me the truth about everything and then said, I'm not telling you any of that on camera. <laughs> So, and of course, Lou Jameson as well, you know, I had a lovely time with her. I mean, you know, just to be controversial, I had a terrible time with John Pertwee. You know, he was very... I've heard I've heard stories
0: that uh, that some people had difficulty interviewing John Pertwee.
1: Yeah, well, he was just, um, he was the opposite of Colin in the sense that, uh, to interview, in the sense that uh, he gave you no credit for being able to do your job. Uh, I would go so far as to say that, he gave the impression, and I'm sure this isn't what was actually going on in his head, but he gave the impression that he was looking for you to mess it up. He was constantly suspecting that I wouldn't be doing a good job, and he gave me no credit whatsoever for what I was doing. So he would, he would I'd be asking a question, yeah. and he would, he would just turn and talk to the director and say, I, I don't like this. Um, I want to talk about something else. You know, and he would say, Nick, I don't I don't want to do that. Could we maybe? No, it was straight over my head. It was a bit like, what's this imbecile doing now? Having said that, um, you know, every time I subsequently met him after that, he was always absolutely delightful to meet. He was just um, quite vicious as a performer. If you were on stage with him, you were used by John on stage. You know, you were you were the whipping boy. If you were the interviewer, he would slap you down and get a laugh out of it. But it would be a vicious, a, yeah. it would be a thing on stage, which looks funny. Um, you know, tragedy is close up. From a distance, it looks funny. Tragedy looks funny in long shot doesn't it you know it looks farcical so when he told me to shut up in the middle of asking a question that's funny to a huge audience when you're standing (laughs) next to Doctor Who and he looks at you and says shut up that's horrific you know but um I, I, I sympathize.
2: I've been there. I've been there doing uh, panels you know with the I mean. uh, with some people, and yeah, I just suddenly realized, oh, okay, um, I'm the straight man and I'm the victim in this. Okay, I'll, I'll, yes, guess and I'll go along, but you know, when are you gonna hit me with a cream pie? You know,
1: it's exactly. Like- yeah, and there's nothing you can do to recover from that situation, and you no. just have to sort of sit there and take it. You know?
2: You know, you gotta, yeah, you got. <laughs> yeah, you sit there. You got to take it, and you got to act like you love it. Yes. Yes.
3: I remember from another interview that John had is that from what I gathered from an interview that I saw a couple times, he saw this more role as a job than the kind of love and and, and, and the – and the core basis of wh- how you and I have fandom towards it. Because I remember, I think he said somebody had asked him, what did you feel the first time you met the Daleks? And he goes, uh, what time is lunch? I think when he was doing it at the time, he probably didn't understand the fandom that was out there. And I think he saw it as a job when he first started. Is that something that I could be wrong
1: about? Or? Well, I I would say this. I, that I think he poured a lot of uh, love into playing the part. And also... I've been realizing more and more recently through rewatching that I think he did a phenomenal job. That's not just a bit of PR nonsense from me. I thought he was a fantastic doctor, actually, and really underrated. He, He's does my all, bear, he is my all time favorite. Yeah, he really bears a lot of rewatching. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it is, frankly, the best performance John Pertwee ever gave in anything his portrayal of the Doctor, in my my humble opinion, obviously. But I think it was John Nathan-Turner who, in some book or something, uh, summed up the different approaches of the Doctor. And the thing was that, you know, John Pertwee was, it seems to me, quite centred on his performance, not on the show itself. It was to do with him. And so... Yeah, asking him about the Daleks, and that he hated the Daleks, and to start with, hated the Master because these were things that took focus away from what he felt was the centre of the job. Oh, it's a good extrapolation of his methodology. I but he was that. brilliant, and I say, as I say, you know, there, I mean, there's a lovely story I tell against myself where after I'd had a particularly bruising experience with him at a convention, at the next convention I went to, the the organizer said, "Oh, and Nick, you're going to be uh, interviewing John Pertzwee, because that went so well," and I said, "I'm not." Into- viewing that expletive deleting <laughs> uh, <laughs> I said no he's just horrible I just you know I, it's not worth my time so anyway cut to a few hours later I'm in the very very crowded green room you know loads of people chatting John Pertwee arrives at the door and everyone sort of turns around there he is in his costume and he's talking away and I'm mumbling to friends next to me oh look at him uh, blah, blah, So I'm not interviewing him and then John Pertwee shouts out across the room oh Nick he says and the crowd parts like the Red Sea to so a channel across the room from him to me and he says I hear you're doing my interview again with, with a big smile on his face <laughs> and I turn around and look at him and I say yes that's right <laughs> <laughs> all my courage melts away
3: you know it's, it's okay Nicholas I, I actually um, had an interview time. with Colin Baker at a convention oh and yes yeah I, I've, I've said this before beforehand and i managed to get another actor's name wrong And this was my first.
0: What's that? It was from the brothers.
3: It was from the brothers. And he, throughout the interview, he kept on saying, Oh, you mean like so and so? Oh, you mean like that? So and so, he would get purposely get the name wrong. <laughs> and about the fifth time he mentioned, it, I said, "You're not going to leave me alone, are you?" <laughs> and he just laughed. I was just like, "Oh God!" My, yeah, but I can see my idol just Rashid tearing me apart the audio. Uh,
1: but um, yes, I think uh, you see Colin can tease quite viciously. But I mean, if you if you put your hands up, he'll let you off the hook. I think the thing with John Pertwee is that he would never let you off the hook. Oh. You know, he, there wouldn't be that sort of. Uh, I remember, the. First, I think it was the first time I interviewed him for a behind-the-scenes thing. I said to him, how are you enjoying the convention so far? In my funny little light voice, you know. And he said, I've just got here. I just looked at me like, you idiot. How can I enjoy it? How do I know? i have just this, you know. And all his mates all laughed in a kind of really harsh, sort of oh. mocking way. And you could see... Like, <gasps>
2: oh, good one, John! <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: You can see my little heart <laughs> break, you know. Oh, God! As I scratch my nose for slightly too long, you
2: know. <laughs> yeah, you can't punch the star, but you, you almost think you can get away with slapping around some
1: of their entourage. <laughs> <laughs> they look quite tough to me. That's uh, Terry should call.
3: Oh, well, yeah. Now, speaking of uh, Colin Baker, one of my first memories of you, Nicholas, we're going way back when. When I first saw the Air Solution.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: And that one actually took my childhood and just killed it on sight because it was the first time ever I saw a doctor in bed with
1: a companion and had to accept it as such. Well, let me tell you this. That was not in my script. I, I did not write that. No? I did not write that. I wrote the opposite. I wrote that they were just friends. And Bill Baggs, he argued with me about it and said, no, I think they should be in a relationship. And I argued successfully not. And he seemed to agree with me, but he did what Bill always did, is he went off and he just filmed it the way he wanted. And I arrived on set and everyone was talking about this bedroom scene. And I laughed. I thought people were just, you know, people no, were just... No, my had
3: just died on impact. <laughs> it was, it was
1: And the hilarious thing, of course, is that... Um, uh you see more of Colin than you do nicola <laughs> more of Colin's skin than Nicola's.
3: I actually enjoyed Colin in it because he seemed like he was having a good time oh, and yes. he was the star of the show practically so i was i was uh I was enjoying it but uh, how did that all come together i I mean, how did you get nicola how did you get the doctors all together to do that?
1: Well, it was round about the time that the somethingth anniversary of Doctor Who—I can't remember which—and there was uh, a thing called the Dark Dimension.
0: Thirtieth, you're talking about the thirtieth. Uh, it would have been yes. 1993,
1: Thank- right? Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's, it's all so long ago. I can't. Remember. <laughs>
0: hey, um, Joe, you're not that much older than I am, Nick. So let's let's, uh, let's just say it
3: right there. <laughs> Okay, well, that's all right then. I feel better. Well, when I was your age, well, I was your age. <laughs> um,
1: yes, yeah, so they were this thing, the Dark Dimension, was, was being sort of peddled around, and of course, it was just an incredible – as it turned out, it was just an incredible invention by the writer, Adrian Rigglesford, who managed to fool uh, some BBC people into thinking that it was being made, so they assumed it was – and then the moment someone actually asked for a budget code, the whole thing unraveled because it didn't actually exist as a production of <laughs> the BBC. It's quite a feat of um, yeah subterfuge to have managed to almost we'll get it to the point where people were actually requiring a budget code. Um, but yeah, so uh, all the doctors were asked to do it. And John Pertwee, Colin Baker, Peter Davison and Sylvester McCoy all turned it down because their parts in it were so small and rather tactlessly, Tom Baker's part was much, much bigger by several magnitudes. And so, when we first started rehearsing the Airzone solution, Colin Baker walked into the room with the script, and he had the Dark Dimension script as well. And he went, and we were re- rehearsing it at the uh, Acton Hilton, as they call it, the old BBC rehearsal rooms that Bill Baggs had managed to wangle some space in, probably you know illegally. And uh, and he waved to the Dark Dimension script around our mind and said, "Do you know the difference between those these two scripts?" And I said no, thinking, oh, cool, what's he going to say? And he put my script down, pointed at it, he said, I'm going to do this one. Oh. Drops the dark dimension unceremoniously onto the floor. So that's sort of well. Well, we didn't hear
2: about dark dimension in the U.S. until like the mid '90s. Eventually, going to trickle out again. You talk about these kids, about these pre-internet days where,
0: well, well, I, unless you follow Doctor Who magazine and got to,
2: even then, that was hard to find.
0: Well, uh, I had a subscription, know.
2: so
1: whatever. Ooh, Ooh yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, it never existed, so it's not. It's possibly not worth knowing about anyway.
2: <laughs> That's true.
1: But for a while, we thought it was.
0: You got Dimensions in Time instead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm an EastEnders fan, so I appreciated it for what it was.
3: The title's been rewritten, The Egos of the Doctor. <laughs> wow. Oh <laughs> but my. You know, God. the
1: story about the zone solution is that after we started filming it, John Pertwee insisted on being in it. <laughs> and Bill Bags. he phoned Bill Baggs and said, I want to be in your, your film. And Bill said, oh, well, maybe we can work together on something else. And, and John said, no, this. I want to work on this because the other doctors are in it. And I think John was sort of doing it as a political statement. And so Bill Bags phoned me up and we were already shooting the Blooming thing. And he phoned me up and said, do you think that when they meet outside the house, there should be this other character? And I said, what? Uh, he said, you know, some like old guru who kind of taught them everything they knew. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, who would we get to do it? We can <laughs> ask Michael Wisher, I said, you know, knowing Michael and thinking he was going, he said, well, I was thinking more John Pertwee. And I said, well, there's no way John Pertwee will want to be in it. And he said, well, actually, the reason I'm phony is because John Pertwee's insisting on being in it. And I need you to write him a character (laughs) fast. So, yeah, I think I had about two days to do it and then went to the set, you know, and they had it all written on a big piece of paper for John Pertwee to read. And he and Peter Davison were doing a big scene. So, yeah, it was brilliant that he was in it. It's fantastic.
0: You also worked with Colin and Nicola on The Stranger Stories. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and, and originally it seemed to be Doctor Who. I mean, it, it, it was, you know, The Stranger and uh, Miss Brown, if I remember <laughs> correctly which okay uh, I wonder that's kind of like the BB audios BBV yeah. with Sylvester as the professor and Sophie as Ace or Alice or which is that Alice is just an Ace with a lie in it yeah uh,
1: they, they have to change it later because the of
0: Domine her. yeah the Domine which is Gaelic for the Doctor but yeah. uh, that's another story we're talking about The Stranger so you, you
1: it's more or less the same story <laughs>
0: So, it, it, But it changed, and it got darker. Each stranger's story got darker. Can you tell us a little about working on The Stranger?
1: Sure. The reason it changed is because uh, you're absolutely right that when Bill originally did it, his intention was just to do Doctor Who but not call it Doctor Who to avoid being sued. So when he asked me to do it, I couldn't I, – I feel I'm not portraying myself as some sort of, you know, crusader for truth and justice. <laughs>
0: All
3: it is that it's when
0: you're Superman, writing. This... ladies and gentlemen, we have Superman here on Krypton Radio. Wow.
3: How appropriate. Yeah. Oh, even better, we have Sherlock Holmes, but we'll, we'll we talk, talk about, about,
0: about that, that later. later. We'll talk about
1: that later. <laughs> <laughs> later. For me, I don't know whether you'll sympathize with this, for me to write something with characters in, I can't write it unless I know who they are and the truth of them. And I can't write something where someone is the doctor but you can't say he's the doctor and the TARDIS is just out of shot because you're not allowed to show it. So my first thing was I thought, well, when he asked me to write one, I'll have it that they've lost their memories, so they don't know who they are, so that's fine. So it had some integrity in the characters. You see what I mean? Because, you know, I yeah. hate that sort of thing where, where people can't say things for copyright reasons. You know, they either are what they are or they're not. So and then when he gave me the opportunity to write some more, I wrote an alternative backstory for them. And, you know, basically so that they weren't the Doctor and Perry and, and we created new stories that way. But it's great fun to do. I mean, it's hugely great experience.
3: I enjoyed those. So, as being a Hoovian, 1989. Unfortunately, it goes away. It comes back in 1996 with Paul McGann. First of all, how did you feel about the movie? Because you use Paul like crazy in the Big Finish <laughs> audios, which I completely thank you so much Always. for. I love that you, you fleshed out his Doctor. Yeah. I loved Dark Eyes. I loved uh, Prisoner of the Sun, which is still one of my favorite Paul McGann ones because it was really, really fun. We were talking earlier about Rob Sherman. One of my favorites is Skirzo, One of his. Oh
0: yeah, yes.
3: Uh, tell me how you felt when '96 came in. It, didn't get rebooted, and then how you came across Big Finish, and where did the title come from out of curiosity?
1: Oh, Big Finish is an episode title from a series that Steve Moffat created called Press Gang. And uh, Jason haygallery has always been a fan of Steve's work and really likes it. It's sort of, it's, it was sort of a, a kid series, but with an adult sensibility about it, and really beautifully made. Have you ever seen it?
0: Yeah, I've, I've seen a couple of the first episodes of it.
1: Well, when Jason created a company, he wanted to use there was a, there was another episode title from it he wanted to use, and I can't remember. But all I'm saying, for all I remember, Jason telling me is that that title sounded even more like pornography than big finish does <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> but anyway well, i
1: never uh,
3: oh, <laughs> uh, <for> never <another>. learn <laughs>
1: that way. And that hadn't occurred to Jason at the time, obviously. Um, that uh, no, I mean that it obviously hadn't occurred to him. But the other title was already taken as a company name, so he opted for his second favourite episode, which was called The Big Finish. So that's where the title came from. What was the other question?
3: Oh, I think you answered that. <laughs> where did it come from and where did you get the idea? Let's go ahead and continue on the series
1: just oh, by a
3: format. Yeah,
1: certainly. I mean, you know, that's something that Gary and I always wanted to do and Gary had known Jason since they were kids, really. And Jason was a successful businessman, so would have the financial wherewithal to to get a license, really. So that's that's kind of how that came about. I mean, there's a much longer story there, but it's documented elsewhere.
3: And I think when you first started, you thought you were going to get Tom Baker, but you ended up with Paul McGann.
1: Well, we thought that it was more likely that we'd get Tom Baker, because Paul McGann seemed to be this you know, this person who'd just done this one-off thing and we didn't know whether he'd have any connection with it at all. And also, you know, Paul McGann seemed like a movie star. And Tom Baker had, you know, done Doctor Who and a few other things, but it sort of... I don't know, it just seemed... Yeah, it, it seemed more likely, but the opposite was true because Tom turned it down uh, in a in a very strange way that, you know, he, he, he received the uh, request officially... And then we never got official responses from him. He just publicly said he wasn't doing it. You know what I mean? So it was a little bit like, um, it would be like the equivalent of uh, asking someone out on a date uh, by a personal message and then them going on Facebook and saying to the world, I am not going on a date with Nicholas Briggs. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it was a bit like that. And I don't think Tom meant it in any particularly nasty way. I don't, you know.
3: I think he... and I think he was just letting fans on know that no, I, I'm not going to participate. But yeah, I can. Could it be nice I, if I can you sympathize for somebody who's made a hands. public announcement? I'm not going out with him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but of course, Tom has since said that he. He doesn't know what was the matter with him, and he wished he had said yes all those years ago. Now, so there you go. But yes, it was quite a surprise to get Paul McGann. I mean, some scurrilous people have suggested that when Janet Fielding was his agent, that's when we weren't getting in, making any headway with uh, Paul McGann. And then when she ceased to be his agent, and we contacted again, uh, suddenly the agent went, "Oh yeah, that sounds like something he'd do." So whether there's any, I know when Janet's been asked about that at conventions, she um, gets very tight-lipped and, uh, and um, slightly aggressive. Although the term "slightly aggressive" pl- applied to Janet Fielding seems moderate. <laughs> hey. I say this with love and affection because I love her very much, and she's a lovely person and you know, does fantastic stuff for Big Finish.
0: All right, we'll have more with Nick Briggs next time here on Marku Forty Two on BigFinish.com. Marku42 was written and presented by Mark Baumgarten, Kayla Ascolillo, Patty Hawkins, and Christian Basil. This episode was edited, directed, and produced by Mark Baumgarten. Visit marku42.net where you can register and become part of the Hooniverse Army. We can be contacted by email at mark at marku42, subject line, question mark. If you'd like a chance to be a guest on our radio show, send an email to our media relations director, Christian Basil, at marku42media at yahoo.com. You can have Marku42 entertain at your next event or convention. Go to herosonhand.com slash Marku42. Doctor Who and its properties are owned by the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. This show is owned and copyrighted by Mark Baumgarten 2016.